So, Father, we are admonished in this text, Lord, that you hear us and you answer our cry. And, Lord, I pray today that that would happen, that you would hear us, that you would answer our cry today. I also ask, Father, that we would hear you. Open our ears to hear you so that we may speak of your great salvation and of your faithfulness to others. And so, Father, I pray today that you would speak Uh, supernaturally uh, penetrate into our innermost being that we would hear your divine voice and Lord we recognize from other texts Lord that as we hear your voice you admonish us not to harden our hearts not to turn away from what you're saying to us but Lord give us tender hearts obedient heart responsive hearts that we will do as you say father and we thank you for that in Jesus name and God's people said Amen. You may be seated. We're going to have you turn uh, to the Gospel of Mark. That's the second book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark. We're doing a series from that book. And uh, we're on chapter 7 and beginning in verse 31. We're going to just look at a brief little story there and begin to unpack some of the things that uh, Mark is writing to reveal to us about who Jesus is. One of the great problems, I think, in the church today is that often we make a wrong assumption of what a Christian is. And let me just explain what I mean by that. Sometimes we think, if I believe the right things, I'm a Christian. Now, I think believing the right things are very important, okay? Don't misunderstand. But the book of James tells us that even the devil believes in God. So that's not enough, folks. That says to me that People who really believe the right things, and what he means by believing is that we internalize it, and it becomes a part of who we are. It becomes reality to us, and we're going to talk about that, because James also warns us that we cannot just be hearers of the word of God and not doers. So there, you know, there's this idea when Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What he's basically saying is, if you guys are listening, then you're going to do what I say. Because, you know, sometimes parents will say this to their kids. Do you hear me? And what we mean by that statement isn't, do you hear my voice? What we mean is, do you get what I'm saying, and are you going to do what I'm asking? It's a little deeper than that, and I think we need to understand that. Now... I think that we all need to have a profound encounter with God in our innermost being. Now, let me just say this, that we can grow up in a Christian home and uh, we can actually, you know, come to a a, a kind of a a gradual, you know, a revelation, a gradual faith, you know, where, where we're hearing as a child and we're embracing it, as we're hearing as a young person and then we're embracing it and pretty soon we're, you know, we're moving along and the, the faith is deepening as we're hearing and so sometimes it's a very gradual thing and we cannot figure out the very hour we gave our life to Jesus because it was quite gradual. It, we just kept hearing as we were growing up, this is the way, this is Jesus, this is this and we had faith in our heart and the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we were exposed to it. And so how many here you could say, Pastor, that was my experience. It was a very gradual thing. I just kept hearing and hearing. And before I knew it, I just kept having faith and my faith kept growing and increasing. That's your experience. Just raise your hand. I'm just curious. How many that was your experience? Okay, quite a few of you, a number of you. That's beautiful. And that's very legitimate, by the way. How many here, you could say, looking at your experience, maybe you even grew up in a Christian home, but it wasn't gradual. It was sudden. I mean, one day you just heard, and it was like God broke through a bunch of barriers in your heart and mind, and immediately you heard the voice of God, and you responded that day, and it was a dramatic encounter for you, and since, since that moment, you have not turned back. Is that Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe more, far more of a dramatic experience with God. Okay, that's great. So we've all had a different experience. But I want to bring that out because God, you know, is working with all of us because we're all originals, we're all unique. But there are similarities, but it's not always exactly the same. But let me just share a little bit of a story from a book I've been reading by Augustine. Augustine was uh, a person who grew up in the 4th century. Uh, in the 300s. He was born in 354. He died in 430. I'm reading a book that he wrote. He was a very prolific writer, but when he was about 
41 years old. He wrote his autobiography, so he died in his 70s. So he's writing to tell his story, and he uses a very interesting genre to explain his kind of his first, it's kind of one of the first autobiographies, and he does it in a very unique way. It's a prayer. Now let me just read a little snippet of that book in his prayer, and it tells us how he came to know Christ. He says, uh, he was already now convinced. I have to explain something to you. He was convinced of the Christian message, and yet he was struggling with immorality. He had sexual issues. He, you know, he had, he had been, you know, he's 31 years old. He's, he's been a philosopher. He had followed the teachings of the Manichaeans, and then he became an, what we call today a Neoplatonist, and a tremendous thinker, but eventually he came persuaded that the Christian message was true, and yet he couldn't, he couldn't respond to it because he was so locked up in his sin. He was so in bondage in his life. He was not free. And so he writes, all this argument in my heart raged only between myself and myself. Alpius, which is the name of a friend of his, stood fast at my side, silently awaiting the outcome of the unprecedented agitation. But as this deep meditation dredged all my wretchedness up from the secret profundity of my being, that's a nice word for the depth of my being, he says, and heaping it all together before the eyes of my heart, a huge storm blew up within me and brought on a heavy rain of tears. This guy's very descriptive. You know, what he was saying is, I'm having a storm inside of me. I'm exploding, you know. Uh, there's all this agitation going on inside of me, and I'm ready to just, you know, lose it emotionally. In order to put them out unchecked with the sobs that accompanied them, I arose and left Alpheus for solitude, seeming to be more suitable for the business of weeping. I withdrew far enough to ensure that his presence, even his, would not be burdensome to me. This was my need, and he understood it, for I think I had risen to my feet and blurted out something about, you know, I need to, I need to leave, and my voice was already choked with tears. He accordingly remained in stunned amazement at the place where we had been sitting, I flung myself down somehow under a fig tree and gave full rein to the tears that burst from my eyes like rivers as an acceptable sacrifice to you. Many things I had to say to you, and the gist of them, though not the precise words, were. And now he quotes the Psalms. If you read this book, it's just interlaced with Scripture. This guy was really, you know, affected by the Word of God. He said, O oh Lord, how long? Oh, how long? Will you be angry forever? He's quoting the Psalms. Do not remember our age-old sins, for by these I was conscious of being held prisoner. I uttered, cries of mercy, uh, uh, cry, uh, I uttered cries of misery. Why must I go on saying tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not now? Why not put an end to my depravity this very hour? Can you guys tell he's under great conviction and he wants to be free? And he's crying out to God to set him free. I went on talking like this and weeping in the intense bitterness of my broken heart. Suddenly I heard a voice from a house nearby, perhaps the voice of a boy or a girl. I do not know. They were singing it over and over again. Pick it up and read. Pick it up and read. My expression immediately altered and I began to think hard whether the children ordinarily repeated a ditty like this or an odd sort of game, but I could not recall ever having heard it anymore, anywhere else. I stemmed the flood of tears and rose to my feet, believing that this could be nothing other than a divine command to open the book and read the first passage I chanced upon. For I had heard the story of Anthony. Now, Anthony was a, a person who had become converted and had, had a very popular book written at that time, and he was probably one of the first monastics, the first person to go out on his own and to seek God. He was an Egyptian. He lived a long time, and so he wrote this autobiography, and it talks about how he became converted. He says, I had heard the story of how Anthony had been instructed by a gospel text. He happened to arrive while the gospel was being read. He wandered into church, and this was the scripture text. And he heard this, go and sell all you possess and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come, follow me. So he was promptly converted to you by this plainly divine message. Stung into action, I returned to the place where Alpheus was sitting for on leaving it, I had put down the book of the apostles' letters. I snatched it up and opened it and read in the silence 
See, now, in those days, people read out loud. It was very unusual to read silently. I just want you to know that. We read silently all the time, but that was unusual. He said, I read silently the passage on which my eye first lighted. Now, remember what his struggle. He was struggling with sexual immorality. Big issue. Not in dissipation and drunkenness, nor in debauchery and lewdness, nor in arguing and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh or the gratifications of your desires. I had no wish to read further, nor was there any need. In other words, God spoke to him. He heard the voice of God. He said, no sooner had I reached the end of the verse than a light of certainty flooded my heart and all dark shades of doubt fled away. I closed the book, marking the place with a finger between the leaves by some other means and told Alpheus what had happened. My face was peaceful now, and he in return told me that what had been happening to him without my knowledge. He had asked to see what I had read, and I showed him, but he looked further than my reading had taken me. I did not know what followed, but the next verse was, because remember, he stopped reading. That was the last verse of chapter 13. So this is what Alpheus reads. He said, Make room for the person who is weak in faith. And he referred this text to himself and interpreted it to me. Now what had happened was, this, was, this is so amazing to me. Can you imagine getting converted by this text? Alpheus was actually a very moral person, and when he heard this, from, he felt God speak to him. It actually led him into ministry. He became a leader in the Christian church. Very amazing. It says, confirmed by this admonition, he associated himself with my decision and good purpose without any upheaval or delay, for he was entirely in harmony with, with his own moral character, which for a long time now had been far, far better than mine. We went indoors and told my mother, who was overjoyed. Monica was a Christian. He had grown up with a non-Christian father, but with a Christian mother. She had prayed and wept and had been assured by God that her son would become a Christian. And when he walked into the house, both he, Augustine, and Alpheus, they told Monica what had happened to them. And she was overjoyed. What a beautiful story. You know, it's not until we hear correctly that we can speak correctly. Now, that's not only true of our ability to learn how to speak. You know, as a child, what we're doing? We're hearing, we're mimicking the sound, and eventually we learn how to say words, and then eventually we learn their meaning. The other day, Patty said to uh, Ariella, she said, Ariella, you have such a good vocabulary. And she said, yes, thank you. And Andrea, uh, Patty said, do you know what that word means? And she said, no. <laughs> uh, and so Patty explained to her what the word meant. And then, how did she say that, Patty? What's a vocabulary, you know? Yes, it was very, very humorous. But that's all part of the learning of the language because we hear it and then we learn to speak it. And you know, as true as that is in the natural realm, that is the same as how it works in the spiritual realm. When we hear God's voice break in and speak into our soul, you know, we hear the message then we begin to speak the message. Isn't that interesting? What was the first response of Augustine when he responded to God? First thing he did was tell his friend. It was an immediate response. And his friend became a believer. And what did they do? Immediately they went and told Monica. Isn't that fascinating? Do you know the Apostle Paul describes it this way? You know, unless we hear God's voice, we're not going to speak to other people. And it says in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 6, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. See, we're preaching a message. And the Bible says in verse 17 of the same chapter, he says, faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? Hearing by the word of God. We have to, faith comes by hearing God's word. 
That's how we have faith generated into our life. And then it says this, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for it is with your heart that you believe. Now, I want to just say something to us. I want to straighten out a, a kind of what I call a, an erroneous thought about the heart and the mind. You know, I, I'm getting tired of hearing this. I understand what you mean, but I want to straighten your theology out. You know when you say things like, I know it in my head, but my heart isn't processing it. You know, like, I know it here, but it's not happening down there. Can I just say in the Bible, the heart includes the mind, and it includes your will. It's your innermost being. When we believe in our innermost being, you know, then we are justified, and it is with our mouth that you confess and are saved. Because you see, what the heart believes, what, what you believe as a person, your essence of who you are. It says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you know, I, I don't have to spend a lot of time with people to figure out where they're coming from. They tell me. Isn't that true? If you want to know a person, just hang with them and listen after a while, and you will find out what makes them tick, what they are about, what they like, what's driving their life, what's motivating them. You can listen to them, and that stuff all comes up. And that's what the Scripture is teaching here. It says we believe something in our heart. We believe the truth about Christ. We believe that he lived. We believe he died. We believe he died for our sin. We accept that. We believe he rose again. He is the Lord of the universe. And then it says, we confess with our mouth, he's Lord. And he says, with our heart, you believe and are justified. And he says, and with your mouth, you confess and are saved. And so we're going to see as we look in Mark's gospel here, the reality of what happens when we hear God, how it moves us into ministry. And so I want to look today at two elements of, of the nature of ministry. And you know, I'm going to look at it this way. I'm going to start out with not what starts first. Usually what happens is God's working in our lives. But because we don't often see God working, we don't always see what he's doing, what we see is the results of what he's doing, what we see is the human response to what God's doing. And so I want to take a look first, the first element of ministry that we witness is, is, ends up being what we do. That's really the response to God. How many know God definitely chooses to use human beings? He really does, and I'll tell you why, because it does something for us, too. You know, he wants to work in us, then he wants to work through us. And I think part of our spiritual growth and development is yielding to him as he's working in and through us. And here in our text, we find a group of people bringing a man to Jesus. Look at chapter 7 um, and verse 31. It says, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon and down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. Now, you know, a little bit of language here. Polis is actually city, okay? And de, you know, decathlon is actually the event that you have 10 events in because it's the number for 10. And so this was a region that had 10 cities and they were primarily Gentile. I'll bring more of that up next week when we focus on that idea. But I want to just give you the context, the geography of the story. And so the Decapolis was probably, and and the, the majority of the populace of those 10 cities were Gentiles, not Jews. And then it says there were some people brought, that, then there were some people who brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged him to place his hand on the man. Isn't that true? I've already said that we learn to speak by how we hear. And so you can imagine how difficult being deaf it was to talk. Because you're not hearing anything and so... I'm sure this man was making noises because it didn't, it didn't say that he was incapable of speaking, but he could hardly talk. I get the feeling there was grunts and all kinds of noise to somehow communicate with people. And you've probably met some people maybe in your lifetime that's had this issue. They were deaf and they're trying to talk and it, you know, it's difficult to understand what they're communicating. But I want you to notice the two things that stand out in this particular verse. The first one was simply they brought him to Jesus. Now, in that day, bringing someone to Jesus was a physical thing. You literally, you know, brought someone to Jesus, you know, and he was there and, you know, you could talk to Jesus. It was a physical thing because he was physically present. But today, we can still bring people to Jesus even though he's not physically present. And so the question is, how do we bring people today? How do we bring people to Jesus today? 
in, in its, in its, it's very profound to me. You know, we, we bring people to Jesus through the life we live. We bring people to Jesus through the words we speak. We bring people to Jesus through the actions and the demonstration of grace and love that we show people. Isn't that true? That's how we bring people to Jesus. You know, you know, E. Stanley Jones says there's two things that characterize real Christians. They listen to God and they talk to people. Many reverse that. They listen to people and they talk to God. Now, you have to think, that's a little bit of a profound thought if you thought about it. <clears throat> listen, we need to hear God. And when we hear God, then we have something to say on God's behalf. Let me just move on here. You know what said of John the Baptist when he came? He came for the purpose of being a witness. John uh, 1.7, Gospel of John says, And John became as a witness, to bear witness of the, of the truth, of the light, to bear witness of Christ. And really, John is reflecting what you and I are to do. We're to bring a witness. As a matter of fact, Jesus says to his disciples, and he's saying it to us today, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you shall be my witnesses. And that's not just the words we say, but it's also the life we live. You know, the life we live and the words we say have to be congruent. They have to be the same. You know, you and I can't be living one life and saying a different thing. How many know that's conflicted and it actually is a measure of hypocrisy and it turns people off from the message? Isn't that true? Well, it does. And we all have seen that and we all have experienced that. Then he goes on to say, this is psychologically sound, he said. The center was outside of himself. In other words, John's life wasn't about John. It was about Jesus. Remember he said, he must increase so I must decrease and there's a beautiful truth that's that's when you know you're growing spiritually is when it's less about you and it's more about Jesus and he was not talking about himself and that's what made John the Baptist so effective it wasn't about his life his goals his ambition his agenda his purpose it was about you know pointing people to Christ as soon as one finds Christ there's an impulse to find another and bring him to Christ in the first chapter of John there were three finds Andrew finds Peter Jesus finds Philip, and Philip finds Nathaniel. The gospel is a gospel of finding. Of the 40 healings in the gospels, all but seven were people brought by someone else. They came to Jesus because of other people. So, there is an amazing sense that we're helping other people when we're bringing them to Jesus. I mean, you think of that beautiful story. I love the story of the man that's an invalid. You know, he can't walk. Uh, he's paralyzed, and his friends, you know, see this, and they're so concerned about this man. What do they do? They, 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 they want to find Jesus. They find that he's at a house, and, but the house is packed with people. There's no way to get in. There's no way to intrude, you know. And so to get Jesus' attention, what do they do? They go up the side of the house, and if you've seen the roof, some of you have been to Israel with me, you know, to Nazareth Village. The houses have a flat roof. It's got, you know dirt and, and straw and, you know, thatch and that kind of stuff. And what do these guys do? They're so desperate to get to Jesus. I can just see them. They're breaking up the roof to lower the man in. And I can see these guys down below as Jesus is talking. Dirt is falling down and hitting him on the head because these guys are wrecking the person's roof, right? Lowering this guy into the situation. The Bible says when they lowered him down, it says Jesus saw their faith. Not the man, but the people above who were lowering the man down. And when he saw their faith, he said to the man, rise from that mat. And the man stood up and walked out. How many think that's pretty profound? That's a miracle, isn't it? But listen, that wouldn't have happened if there weren't four friends bringing the man to Jesus. And you know what? Every time you and I bring people to Jesus, a miracle can happen. Most of the people we bring to Jesus are paralyzed. Most of the people we bring to Jesus are blind. Spiritually speaking, they are blind. They are paralyzed. They can't get there. They're blind. They don't see it. You know, they're, they're deaf. They can't hear it. And when we bring them to Jesus, a miracle happens when Jesus reveals himself to them and they can now get up and begin to walk. They can begin to see clearly they can hear the voice of God and they can speak God's message to other people but the second thing I noticed from this one verse is that they beg Jesus to touch this man's life Isn't that great how do we do that today well they were talking on behalf of this person what do we call that what do you call that when you're talking to God on behalf of another person 
intercession or prayer, right? We're interceding, we're petitioning that person. I think the greatest things, probably one of the greatest things we can do for another person is to pray on their behalf. We're interceding on their behalf. You know, that's, a, that's, a, that's important. I mean, you can bring the person up to Jesus, but if Jesus ignores them, that's not good, you know? And I preached about that last week, how Jesus purposely allowed the woman, you know, he was silent toward her at first. And pretty soon the disciples started saying, hey, Jesus, you've got to do something about this. He's, he's driving us crazy, right? So they started urging, urging Jesus to do something. You know, much of what we do in other people's lives has very little impact. And I'll tell you why. Because what we need to understand is, is there's, you know, there's sometimes a hardening of the heart. And you've all experienced this. You know, how many here, and you don't have to raise your hand, but you say, you know, I've been trying to get through to my spouse, but it's like talking to a brick wall. You know, or, you know, I've been trying to get through to my kids, but they're not getting it. They're not listening, right? Come on now. No amens. You know, <laughs> you know, you know I, I'm a teacher, and I've been trying to get through to my students, and they're just not getting it. I'm a pastor, and I'm trying to get through to my congregation, and they're just not getting it. That's <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, and so, you know, I can get frustrated, and I can say, God, i got to preach better. No, God says you got to pray more. Because you see, when we start praying, God starts working in the heart of the other person. And so what do we do sometimes is we just elevate our game and we just start, talk, we start talking more. And we go into the nagging mode. How many know that that usually doesn't do very much? And what it usually does is it just alienates and turns people off and they feel criticized. And, you know, it doesn't work. But when you and I pray, I, you know, would to God we'd pray more. Because when we're bringing people to Jesus, you know, and we're praying about it, hearts are beginning to become open and they can hear the voice of God for themselves and when a person hears the voice of God for themselves you know they're changed you know Augustine did not want you know she, he, he literally fled North Africa to get away from Monica she was getting to him you know and he told her hey listen you can come with me and then he took another ship and deserted her I mean he was not a nice guy at times you know, and she just kept praying for him. And then she eventually followed him up to Rome and, I mean, to Milan, where he eventually became a Christian. Now, you know, a lot of times our praying is that we're praying for the wrong things. And James tells us that in chapter 4, verse 3. He says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. So what is he basically saying here? He said, a lot of our praying is, Lord, I want my life to work. I want to be blessed. I want favor. I want provision. I want healing. I want health. You know, I want this good-looking guy. I want this great-looking girl. Isn't that kind of how we pray? None of you ever pray like that. <laughs> you know? And I'm not saying those things are bad or necessarily wrong, but let me just point out to us, when we are to pray, Jesus taught us how to pray. He said, you know, Lord, I pray this prayer. I say, Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done. How many know that's a little different prayer than, you know, this is what I want, God, can you please give it to me? How many think there might be a little difference in that praying? You know, and what am, I, what am I saying? I'm just saying this, that when Jesus is talking to us, he's saying, what is the wellspring of your life? What is mo motivating you? What's driving you? What is the purpose of your being? What are you living for? What's the agenda of your life? And listen to what Jesus says. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be given to you as well. He was talking to these poor people about getting enough food and enough clothing. He said, you know, the Gentiles, they're focused on material things. And by the way, you know, in North America, we're tremendously materialistic. Don't say we're not. We are. I'm going I'm to admit it. I'm going to acknowledge we're stuck. We're, we're materialists. And the, the thing is, when we make that our goal... We're missing it. Because you see, God says, if you'll put my kingdom first, I'll take care of what you need. Don't, don't make that the focal point. Don't make that the goal of your life. You know, don't make the trips the goal of your life. Don't make the fat bank account the goal of your life. Don't make the new car the goal of your life. Don't make, you know, the person that you're thinking about marrying the goal of your life. Because when you put those things first, they become an idol. And it's a sad thing. You're going to be deeply wounded and disappointed. I can guarantee you. He says, not only that, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough of its own trouble. When we make anything other than the kingdom of God our priority, 
then what we're really doing is making these other things idols, and idols rob us of joy, of life, of peace, of blessing. As a matter of fact, E. Stanley Jones says this, if you ask something else first, all these things will be subtracted from you. That's a little shocking statement. In other words, they're gonna, those things may come into your life, but they're going to diminish you. You're going to pay a price for having the wrong goal. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've done it. You've paid the price. You went after the wrong thing, and you go, you know what? It didn't enhance me. It diminished me as a person. Because at the end of the day, when you stand before God, do you think all the things that we had on earth is going to really matter at that moment? How many think that's not going to matter one iota? Do you know what? It's not going to matter what kind of earthly investments you have. I'm not saying it's wrong to have them, but I'm just telling you those earthly investments are not going to matter at that moment. You know what's going to matter at that moment? How you invested your life for the things above. Did you put God's kingdom first? You know, I spoke here recently at our um, CE teacher training thing. I'm, I'm, I'm passionate. You guys... I was so passionate that day because this is such a deep concern of mine that Christians are so ignorant of what the Bible says, so ignorant of what God really requires of us, that we're really living distracted and divided lives. And it's so grievous to me because I know once we get into the Word of God and we really understand God's Word and we really hear God's voice, it's going to really impact our lives and change the focal point and the focus of our lives. You know, oftentimes, we're more concerned about our agenda than God's agenda. And I pointed that out to the teachers. I said, listen, let me ask you a question today in this, in this room. How many here think that if more Christians were concerned about what God was concerned about, if we were more concerned about doing what God wanted us to do, we'd probably have a different world? It's probably true, isn't it? Are we more concerned about living for ourselves and pleasing ourselves than we are about living for Christ and pleasing Him? Are we more concerned about what people think of us than we are about what God thinks of us? You know, I shared that thought. It got really quiet. What kind of a commitment do we have to the kingdom of God? Well, I'm in it for what I get out of it, Pastor, not for what I can give to it. And I'll just tell you right now, that's the wrong way to think because I've discovered one thing in life. You only get out of life what you put into it. And the thing that you invest the most into it, the thing is going to get the most from. And the people who would give the most back to the kingdom of God, the people who surrender the most to it, you know, are the ones who are experiencing the highest level of satisfaction. So when people are whining and complaining to me, which a lot of people don't, I only have a very few whiners and complainers, but you know, those people are telling me it's about them. That's all they're telling me. It's getting scary. He said, Pastor, I don't want to complain to you. <laughs> Galatians says this, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. You know, I'll say to you right now, this, I'm going to simplify your life for you. You only have to please one person. It's not your spouse. It's not your kids. You know who it is? It's not yourself. If you do that, you're going to have a miserable existence. Please Christ. The one person. And I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. When you really please Christ, you will be more effective at creating a happier relationship in your home. You really will. If you're really pleasing Christ you'll have a better relationship with other people, for the most part. Some people you won't. You know, it's interesting. Stanley Jones said something very fascinating. By the way, I'm quoting him because I was just kind of thumbing through his devotional book. We kind of gave those out a number of years ago on the way. You know, he was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. How many think somebody's nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize probably has had some impact on the world? In 1938, he was... It was stated by Time Magazine, front cover, the greatest missionary of the century, E. Stanley Jones. Listen to what he says. He, was, he said the greatest compliment ever paid to him was when he was being introduced. And, he, and it was said this way. The speaker got up. You know how you do this? You're introducing the speaker. And he said, I'm going to quote something that Stanley quote, wrote himself. And he said this. The significance of Mahat Gandhi is not in the person but in the cause by which he is identified, the cause of India's freedom. 
In other words, what makes Mahat Gandhi great is not so much that he is anything in and of himself, but it's the cause that he's espousing has made him this great personage in the eyes of the people of India. The significance of our speaker tonight is not in himself, but in the cause by which he is identified. The kingdom of God. But if you are self-centered, you are unimportant, for you are identified with nothing important, no matter how importantly you may act. What is he saying? He's saying when it's all about you, you're diminishing yourself. But when you and I identify with a cause that's so great, that's greater than ourselves, it's not being self-centered. It's about the greatest cause possible. That's the cause of God on this planet. When you and I identify with that cause, that cause alone will make you greater than you'll ever thought it would ever be coming. It will exalt you. It will lift you up. It's just the nature of it. It can't help it. The life that is truly free is the life freed from self-centeredness and given to the ultimate highest reason for living, the kingdom of God. And when we are bringing people to Jesus, we are advancing the kingdom of God. Because you and I don't know that person we bring to Christ, the kind of influence and impact that they're going to have in the world around them. Isn't that true? And you know, by the way, every time you diminish a person from the kingdom of darkness who could bring death and destruction, you may be bringing that person to do an amazing good in your, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your province, in your nation, in the world. Let me move on to the second element of ministry. It's what God does. Here in our text, Jesus is sensitive to the needs of this person. Rather than make this man a spectacle, Jesus takes him aside. Look at verse 33. After he took him aside, away from the crowd... By the way, this is the only guy he does this to. He got very few. He, very few that he did this to. He just took them away from the people. And then he put his finger in the man's ears. That's kind of weird, isn't it? And then it says, he spit and touched the man's tongue. And then he looked up to heaven. And with a deep sigh, he said, Ephrata, which means be opened. And at this, the man's ears were open. His tongue was loosened. And he began to speak. Now, you have to understand something. I was reading this. And I thought about it. It says, you know how hard it would be to be blind, right? You can't see anything. But people kind of understand that. You probably see your little white cane. You see you're struggling. But being deaf has a whole social stigma that most of us don't consider. Because when you're deaf, people can be talking to you, and you're not even knowing they're talking to you. And so people think, what a snob. You're ignoring me. You know, people can be talking to you, and you don't understand what they're talking about. And so when you try to speak back, you know, you don't have the ability to communicate clearly. And so Ken Hughes points out the gawking and patient stares of those who are not aware of one's condition. Can you imagine the stigma being unable to speak? There is also the humiliation of being thought stupid because one cannot understand or speak. Timothy Keller says when he comes into the man's cognitive world, this is Jesus, and he uses terms, they're all nonverbal terms or speech, that the man can understand. Can you imagine what's Jesus doing? He puts his hands in his ear and say, look, I'm going to do something about this. Then he puts his finger in his mouth. I'm going to do something about this. Then he looks up and says, it's coming from above. Isn't that amazing? That's an amazing thought. You know, and then we read that Jesus sighed. New Testament scholar Alan Culpepper says this. In Judaism, sighing expressed deep distress of spirit and often led to prayer. John Johannes Schneider notes, God hears the sighing of his people. Remember, they were sighing in slavery. And interprets the reference in Mark 7.34 as a prayer sigh. In other words, in Romans chapter 8, it says, you know, you and I could be sighing with groaning and moaning, words that we cannot utter. How many have ever had a moment and, and you've heard a situation and all you could do was sigh? Anybody have those moments when you hear tragedy or brokenness and you just... You just sigh. You know what that is? That's a prayer, folks. Something deep within our innermost being saying, God, please. It's a cry to God. You're sighing. Jesus was sighing because he saw the condition of this human being. And then we come to a most interesting word that Mark uses to describe the man's condition. The man was not totally mute. He could still speak, but he could, he could hardly talk. And I love what Timothy Keller, I'm going to quote him because he kind of wraps up with all the scholars are saying. And you know what? It was really exciting for me this week because, as I'm going to share in a minute, I was studying this chapter a few years ago. Mark deliberately signals this with a word he uses for the deaf that could hardly talk. A single Greek word. I don't even know how to say this word. M-O-G-I-L-I-L-A-L-O-S. You guys can say it, that's good. 
That word is used there and in no other place in the Bible except Isaiah 35.5. Now, how many know I, the Old Testament is all written in Hebrew? So what we're talking about here is the Greek translation of the Hebrew called the Septuagint. That's what we're talking about. This word is only used in two places in the Bible, in Isaiah 35 and in Mark 7. Now, don't you think it's interesting? It's a rare word. Mark would have no reason to use it unless he wants us to cross-reference what's happening here with Isaiah 35. Isn't that beautiful? He, he's kind of giving you a signal. This is important. Oh, by the way, I didn't tell you this. A couple years ago, I was studying Hebrew, and we had to do a study on one text, one chapter from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 35, I picked. A poetic passage. I wrote 11 pages on that chapter. And I got so excited. I went, wow, I picked one of the best chapters. This was so dynamic. You know why? Let me tell you. Because it's talking about when God comes when the Messiah comes. It says, be strong, do not fear, your God will come to save you. I'm quoting verse 10 of Isaiah 35. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Mark is saying, do you see the blind opening their eyes? Do you see the deaf hearing? Do you hear the mute tongue shouting for joy? God has come. That's what's happening. Just as Isaiah 35 promised, God has come to save you. Jesus Christ has come to save us. Now, you remember back to an interesting time. Remember John the Baptist? He's now in prison. He's the guy that came along as a witness to Jesus Christ. He's the one that said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But then he's now in prison. His life is on the verge of being taken away from him. As a matter of fact, a little later on, he's executed by Herod. Do you know the story? While he's in prison, self-doubt begins to rule in his heart and mind. And then he... And then we read this beautiful passage from Matthew chapter 11. And it says this. When John heard in prison, you know, that what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples and he said, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? How many think that's really strange? Isn't that kind of weird? I mean, that John, who had come to bear witness of Jesus, is now doubting Jesus. And you know why he was doubting Jesus? Because he, like all of his contemporaries, believed that the Messiah would come and deliver them from Roman oppression. He didn't have the total picture, folks. And I want to just say this. So often in our lives, we're the same way. We don't get the whole picture. We don't fully understand what's going on. And so doubt emerges in our minds. How many have ever had a moment where you really felt God was going to do something and he doesn't do it the way you think, but he does something totally different? How many have ever had that experience? I've had that experience on more than one occasion. I've kind of wondered, God, what are you doing? And then afterwards, I realized, looking back, I go, wow, that was something I would have never saw coming. I would have never thought God would have done it that way. As a matter of fact, sometimes God has used some of the most difficult things in my life to teach me some of the most profound and greatest lessons, and I would have never signed up for the class. Amen? But I'm sure glad I got the information. Right? Because it came out of the anvil of the school of life of hard knocks, you know. How many have ever taken some courses in the school of hard, hard knocks? You know, we've all had some of those courses, right? And it was painful. And John was there. And Jesus said, go back and report to John what you're hearing and what you're seeing. He says, the blind receive the sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. You know what he's basically saying? He's saying... I'm doing what the Bible said I was going to do. I've come to save my people. I've come to free them. But not just from economic and political oppression. I've come to set them free from their sins. Powerful. I've come to redeem them. What a great, great thing. See, Matthew is pointing us back to that Isaiah text in chapter 35. I love it. You know, you know what I like about the Gospel of Mark? Unlike John, who basically says, Jesus is God, Mark never tells us that. No, what does he do? Jesus just acts like God. He just does the God stuff. He just kind of walks on water. Only God can pull that trick. Jesus is constantly doing the God stuff. And that's what Mark is trying to tell us. Jesus is not just who you think he is. He's more than who you think he is. I love that about the way Mark describes it. 
And then Robert Stein in his commentary says, you know, an open ear was also a symbol for receiving divine revelation and truth. I've already said it. We cannot communicate clearly until we hear clearly. And what we communicate must come from God. Now we have Jesus doing something very interesting. I think this is fascinating. Look at verse 36. He tells people not to tell people what he's doing. Okay, look at verse 36. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. Now, Mark, in his gospel, does this more than once. He tells you, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. So there's a whole bunch of Christians reading Mark, and they're saying, we shouldn't tell anybody. Bad interpretation. Let me explain to you what's going on in the gospel of Mark here, because everywhere else I read in the Bible is telling me the opposite. So what does this really mean? Why does Jesus tell these guys, don't tell anyone? Because they have the wrong idea about the Messiah. He does not want to jeopardize his mission. He does not want these guys to, you know, bring his mission to a close quicker than it needs to be. He wants to spend more time with his disciples. He knows he's going to die. He knows these people are going to finally lose it on him. He knows it's all coming down the track. He's smart enough to see it coming, but he also knows it's coming. He says, don't, don't hasten my demise. I got a little work to do, you know, yet. And you know what's fascinating about this verse? And I, and I, and I noticed it before I, I read any commentary because I was in my Greek little New Testament with the transliteration into English. And this word talking is an unusual word. It's actually the word that we use for preaching. Now, why did Mark use the word preaching there? Isn't that a good question? Why would he use the technical term for preaching when it says the, the more they kept preaching about it? Because you have to go back and think about, okay, what's, who's Mark writing to? He's writing to an audience that's a generation later than when the event occurred. He's writing to an audience that's probably living under Herod's reign, or Nero's reign. What was Nero doing? What was Nero doing? He was killing Christians, folks, because they were speaking out their faith. They were hearing what God was saying, and they were speaking it out. And Mark is basically saying, yeah, Jesus said this, but notice how these Gentile people were responding to what Jesus was doing. They continued to preach anyways. And you know what he was saying to them? You need to keep speaking anyways, even though it may cost you something. You know, well, let's just look at the summary of Jesus' ministry in verse 37. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Think about that statement. He's done everything well. When God finished creation, what did he say? It is good. It is very good. What were the people saying? What Jesus is doing is good. It's very good. There's an echoing going on. Do you see it? What Jesus is doing is very good. It's amazing. It is amazing what Jesus does in people's lives. How many here could say, it's amazing what Jesus did in my life? How many here could say, that's true of my life, my own life? I'm amazed at what he's doing in my life. I'm amazed at how he's changed me. I'm amazed at how God has led my life. I'm shocked, to be honest with you. I am so amazed by what he's doing. It is an amazing thing. He has done a good thing. He has rescued me from darkness. Do you know if we are deaf to spiritual truth, we have no message. But when we come to Jesus and he opens our ears so that we can hear and he touches our mouths so that we can speak, we are forever changed. We are now free to live for a greater cause, the kingdom of God. We have a powerful message that needs to be heard by our society. Lord, I pray today that you will heal our ears and cause us to hear what you are saying. Compel us to speak this amazing message of grace so that those around us can hear. That those around us who are blind can see. That those around us who are paralyzed can begin to walk. I'm going to have it stand this morning as we close. Maybe you're here today. You say, Pastor, God spoke to me today. God is speaking to me right now. Say, God has opened up my heart. 
He's opened up my ears. I can hear right now. God's talking to me. Maybe you've never, this has never happened before to you. But today, God spoke to you. You found out Jesus is here to save you. Jesus is here to give you a purpose for living that's greater than your own life. It's a life that will be changed because of this purpose. It's very powerful. And maybe for the first time, you've never done this before, but you, you know, I've tried today to bring you to Jesus. I've prayed for you with my brothers at 8 o'clock in the morning, with other people in our church that came at 8.30. We prayed for you. We begged Jesus. I prayed. I said, Lord, open their ears. I pray, Lord, open their ears so they may hear your voice. And then the book of Hebrews says, Today if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. Don't reject me. It'll just get harder. Your heart will just get harder. God's speaking into your soul right now, and he's saying, you know what? I'm bringing you to myself. You need to respond to me. You need to respond to me. And look what happens when we respond. We say, yes, Lord, here I am. God will do a work of grace in our soul. Think of Augustine struggling with immorality. He knew the truth, but he couldn't get free. But when he heard that word, he says, don't make any provision for this. Just put on the Lord Jesus. He was set free. Jesus is here today to set you free, my friend. With every head bowed right now, I'm just going to ask the question. You've never given your life to Jesus Christ. But today you're hearing his voice. You say, I want to do it today. Just raise your hand real quickly. I'm not going to put you on the spot. Anyone? God bless. Anybody? Anyone here? Yeah, okay, great. It's wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. I'm going to ask a different question. How many here today, you're a child of God. You say, you know, Pastor, God's been speaking to me about my agenda. I do not have the kingdom of God as my objective. I'm not seeking it first. I have other agendas. I have a personal agenda. Today I'm willing to lay down mine for his. I want to seek his kingdom first. I want to do his will. And that's you today. Just raise your hand right where you're at. Just raise, would you pray with me, Pastor? I want to lay down my agenda for his. I want to do his will. I want to seek his kingdom first. God's speaking to your heart today. Don't, don't harden it. Respond to it. God's calling you. He's calling you today. He's calling you to be obedient. You know, some of us have maybe not been obedient to God. I'll tell you what. We can resist God. Believe me, God will let us do it as human beings. He'll let us resist. But it'll only hurt us. It's going to hurt us. I can tell you that right now. You want to be free. You want to be filled with joy. You want to have peace. You want to have a reason for living life. At the end of the day, you're going to become a greater person if you're willing to surrender to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are speaking into our lives and we're hearing your voice. Lord, help us to respond to you today. May the word of God develop and grow within our soul, Father. May we respond to you, Lord. In the days ahead, may the words that have been spoken be unable to be cast away. But Lord, I pray that these words would penetrate every human heart that's hearing these words. And that we would come to a saving faith, a glorious faith. Lord, your word says that this salvation is glorious. It's wonderful. It's marvelous. It's amazing. Lord, I pray that we will be filled with your grace. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave.